Okay, this is the Shift M podcast, and uh, we are starting the new episode with a great guest, uh, really a very important person uh, for me because I'm a big follower, and for many of our listeners as uh, uh, Venkat Subramaniam, who is a very famous person in the software development community, and we're going to have a lot of questions today. It's going to take about an hour, maybe a little bit less. So I'll give the microphone to Venkat and ask him to introduce himself quickly. Please oh. tell us who you are. Well, th- thank you. You're very kind. Uh, it's, it's a great pleasure. I'm humble, humbled at the introduction. Uh, I'm a programmer at heart. Uh, I s- spend a lot of time uh, writing code, uh, teaching uh, programming to uh, uh, students at the university and also uh, people in the industry. I-, I write books. I speak in a lot of different conferences. Uh, so pretty much, uh, you know, mostly spend time on uh, writing books and uh, getting excited about uh, coding. Okay, that sounds great. Uh, the, the, the theme of this conversation today is uh, uh, actually I would like to know, uh, to hear your opinion about what are good programmers, what are bad programmers. All my questions are going to be around that. And uh, you're a great example for many of us how to be a, you know, a famous person, a visible person. So my first question is, what do you think, how do you divide programmers to great programmers and not so great programmers. So who are they for you? How do you think, who are the best programmer? Who, who is it, the great programmer, the good, the best programmer? <laughs> well, well I, I would like to say, uh, you know, good programmers and those who are aspiring to be good programmers uh, rather than being bad programmers. Uh, and, and, and in a way, I would, I would even say that, uh, you know, it's, it's not really about good and bad. It's about, it's, it's a journey. And to me, one of the key things really is uh, a good programmer always strives to get better, is never satisfied with what they know. Um, You know, if you really ask me what made a big difference for myself, uh, it really is realizing that I can be a lot better than I am when my work is reviewed by other people. So to me, feedback is extremely important. When I go into companies, I often see two kinds of programmers. Those who are really good at what they do, and they're also very open to get critiqued by other people, versus those who are thinking they are good, but they really are not as good, but often they are fairly closed. They get defensive. They don't want other people to review what they do. And so in general, I would say we get better at what we do if we expose our work to other people and have them provide feedback on a continuous basis. Uh, And the feedback has to be really incremental. You know, one of the things I always tell, you know, as an example, right, if you take code review, I often tell Mm -hmm. people, if you want my feedback, ask for a frequent review. If you want my blessing, ask for an infrequent review. So, so that to me is one of the most important things. Uh, I am who I am because of so many people who have taken the time to help me to get better at what I, what I do by reviewing what I do, helping me along the way, providing feedback. And I think that's one of the most important things, in my opinion, is to be having that willingness to seek feedback and use feedback. That's great. So, so from this, I can take that if... The programmer in front of me tells me that 
um, you know, I'm not really an open person. I like to work with my project in the in the private project and the private community, private team. So my work is not open to the wide community, but I'm still a good programmer. So in this case, I should really doubt that statement and really think that this programmer may not be as good because he was for so long so closed and so closed community and a so closed project. So if the work was not open for a long time, like for example, to the open source community, then it doesn't mean that the programmer is you know, not as good. Well, I, I, would, I would not definitely say that because uh, a lot of work I do is not open source. A lot of work I do is for uh, clients and, and uh, you know, in a way, commercial applications. Uh, but, but the key here is, you know, when I go into companies, there are developers who mingle among other developers within their own companies or groups and actively seek feedback and actively seek criticism versus developers who, within the same exact groups, uh, shy away from such criticisms and exposure and, uh, you know, keep it to themselves in writing the code. So it, it just because somebody is developing open source doesn't make them naturally good. And on the same token, just because somebody is cr creating a closed source or commercial doesn't naturally make them bad. It really is how much they get their work reviewed by other people around them, you know, and, and it's important that the people who review the work are the people who are knowledgeable about the work as well. The worst kind of feedback you can get is from people who don't, uh, you know, have any uh, direct contact with the application or the, or the particular uh, concept being worked on. So, so it's it's important to you know set that apart and say it, it's how much they are willing to learn from other people and how much they're willing to you know change what they do is, is really what matters. But when you look at the programmer, when you talk to a new programmer, how do you know was that person in the past? willing to uh, open their work and, and was that person uh, open to reviews or not? Well, typically uh, in, interaction is um, such a wonderful thing because when you, when you begin to interact with people, you can immediately get a sense of how open they are to different ideas. How open are they to be challenged? Uh, you know, it reminds me of an experience I had when we were interviewing a candidate for the company that I was consulting with. And, and this particular candidate came in and said, here's how things will work. And, and we kind of knew that it, it wouldn't work. But mm -hmm. nevertheless, you know, we said, hey, that's an interesting idea. But, but what are the pros and cons? Is it possible this will not work? And, and the candidate rejected that right away and said, nope, I'm confident this will work. This is exactly how it should be done. And, and the candidate was definitely not even, uh, you know, even have an iota of doubt that maybe I should really question this decision. And uh, of course, that night, uh, the candidate uh, went back uh, to home, tried this particular thing uh, we were talking about, and then emailed and said, yeah, it did not work. Uh, uh, you know, I should have thought about this a little bit more, but still, I'm really a good programmer. And of course, we readily rejected this person uh, because the person did not have the ability to uh, entertain this thought that maybe there are different approaches and maybe what I know is not the best or even the level of being correct. And I think that's kind of uh, something to you can gauge quite quickly when you interact with people. Are, are they clinging on to their thoughts with an absolute certainty 
or they have the humility to say, hmm, here are things I know, but doesn't mean that there are no better ways or different ways. Uh, so it's, 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 uh, these things can come out quite uh, quickly during interactions, I think. And how would you recommend, let's say I'm a team leader and I have a group of programmers, like 10 people working with me. And I see that uh, even though most of them are like good engineers, but some of them are, like you said, they shy away from criticism and they are afraid of opening their work and they don't really like this. So what would you recommend me as a team leader to do with these people, how to help them, how to help them be more open? What are the techniques? One of the things I care about a lot is uh, culture. And I want to emphasize the word culture is, is not specific to a country or uh, a region on the planet. Uh, I have been in large companies and I would walk across the corridor on the fifth floor and I would come across seven different cultures sometimes. So one mm. of the things I care about a lot is what is the culture of a particular team? And uh, in general, though, what happens over time is the culture of the team tends towards a certain direction, depending on what, what most people are. If, if most people on the team are uh, fairly interactive, they are fairly open to criticism and, and help each other out with a good attitude. Uh, you know, one of the things to really ask the question is, why are people shying away from feedback? So it's rather than branding them as good or bad, if I take a few minutes to ask the question, why are they shy, shying away from feedback? The chances are they probably had an experience in the past within their cultural boundaries where they were uh, put down when they asked for feedback. Uh, or maybe they were you know, criticized negatively when they asked for feedback. So, so it's important to really understand not just what you know, the behavior is, but, but why the behavior is as well. And, and then once we understand that, uh, as a team leader, it is to create a conducive environment where people will thrive and build upon honesty. It should be really safe to be honest. You, if I say I don't know something, that's not a negative. It, it is something where I, there's a lot of things I know, but there's a lot more I don't know. And it's important for the team to have an attitude. Uh, it should be a cultural aspect of the team where it's okay for people not to know and it's, it's perfectly okay for them to learn. So that's kind of what I would look for as a leader is to understand and nurture that kind of behavior where we are constructive in our criticism and we focus more on helping other people than scrutinizing other people. So the goal is not to scrutinize. The goal is to get better. And, and, and that culture is extremely important, I think. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. It's quite a, like a very generic advice because I was looking for something more specific. For example, in, in one of my teams just a few months ago, I was uh, asking everybody, all the programmers around, to make regular presentations of their work. So not just sitting in front of the computer and delivering the code and making pull requests and everything, but also like once a week or once a month, stand up in front of everybody, make a few slides and tell everybody what's going on and present the work and accept some criticism. Sort of uh, let, let themselves be trained and be prepared for certain negativities. What do you think about this approach? So, so one of the things I want to be absolutely careful about is, uh, this is one thing I fear quite a bit. I, I can't take something that I feel is right 
and assume that it's the right thing for everybody on the planet. Uh, you know, there's a saying that some people would, uh, you know, fear speaking in front of people much more than dying. And mm. uh, that is something I'm very sensitive about. You know, the fact that I stand in front of thousands of people and talk every day is not a certificate for me to assume that every single human being can do that. Uh, in fact, I would quite uh, uh, say the opposite. Uh, a best way, better way to get criticism on the work is not by presenting work in front of a lot of people, uh, because that can be nerve-wracking for a large variety of people. Uh, in fact, uh, even for code reviews, I often say the worst way to do code review is to bring 10 people into the room or even five people into the room and start creating a piece of code because the person who wrote the code now has to face uh, you know, five uh, different opinions all at the same time, which can be quite nerve-wracking. In, in all honesty, I would even say that I probably would shy away from that myself. Uh, so the goal is to get a feedback, but the goal doesn't have to be that somebody has to stand up in front of people and uh, and debate several people at the same time. You know, this kind of brings back memory of my master's thesis and dissertation which is uh, really something I didn't really enjoy because you have to take all the work you did and stand in front of a committee and defend your work. That's why they call it defense. I don't want this to be a defense. I don't want this to be something where I try to uh, you know, convince that I've done a great work, uh, but instead is really, uh, I prefer a lot of times a more of a one-on-one -on -one conversation where I can go to somebody whom I respect and sit down with them and say, hey, here's what I've done. What do you think about it? And, and they not only tell me well, you know, what I can improve, but they also show me how I can improve it, but in a non-challenging way, a non-emotionally uh, taxing way. And, and that is something very important for me. And this kind of goes back to what I said earlier, is we need to really understand why people behave as well, not just how they behave, and if you take somebody who is already reluctant in, uh, you know, being uh, open because of past experience, and you put them in exactly the situation that had made them become that way, it probably becomes a nightmare for them to survive in that environment. So, so I, I care about, uh, you know, emotional, um, you know, concerns as well, because I, I can't assume what works for me. Uh, works for every single person on my team. I mean, I work with people who are extremely shy. Uh, they would not speak, uh, you know, in in a in a meeting or a group. But you sit down with them, and they open up and give amazingly great ideas, amazingly great uh, opinions. And what a shame it would be for me to say everybody has to speak in a group and then miss out the opportunity to get that insight from that person. So, so as, as a leader, I would say, I need to nurture to the differences among the people and not go with the cookie cutter approach where I say everyone on the team is gonna do exactly like the way we have decided. Uh, I, I think we need to care about the individual and their uh, characters as well and the personalities to, to make up a really good team. Yeah, it makes sense. But my question is, uh, don't you think that these um, uh, characteristics of people, like shy people or non-shy people, are 
trainable. Like you just gave an example that you were at your master's thesis and uh, your dissertation, you you didn't like the experience of talking in front of people who were, uh, you know, trying to, expecting to criticize you and so on. But you are a very uh, regular and popular and famous speaker right now. So maybe you train yourself. Maybe you overcome some of your uh, psychological difficulties. You were probably more shy like 20 years ago. Now you're less shy. So maybe this quality is trainable, like like Java skills as well. Like 20 years ago, you were probably not a good Java developer. Now you're a great Java developer. You trained yourself. Maybe it's possible for programmers also to train the skills of presenting in front of everybody and taking criticism uh, constructively. Well, uh, uh, you know, that, that to me is a bit uh, vexing because, you know, who am I to decide that somebody should be trained in a certain way. Uh, this is like me trying to impose my ideology on, on the rest of the people. Uh, individuality is extremely important. I don't really believe I have any right to erase that from people. Uh, and uh, I, I would actually not desire to be a part of a, such a team where uh, somebody says, we will tell you exactly how you should behave and we're going to train you for being that. I would rather be in a team where uh, I have flexibility to exercise you know, my personality. I don't want to be wiped out and come back, uh, everybody looking the same as part of being a team. So I'm pretty sensitive to those ideas as well. Uh, but on the other hand, the question to ask is, uh, you know, typically, is the environment negative or the, is the environment positive? And, and that is something really important to consider because uh, a feedback is just a feedback, but, but how the feedback is delivered and how the feedback is perceived makes a huge difference. And uh, when the situation is punitive or when the situation is uh, negative, uh, it is not something that's entertained. Uh, on the other hand, when the positive, uh, when the feedback is really constructive and positive, when the person receiving the feedback sees the benefit of receiving the feedback, they're going to be more open to receive that feedback. So, so we need to be a bit sensitive about uh, individuals and characters as well, rather than trying to determine that there is there's one way to do things and everybody is going to be exactly like that. And, and I would say it would be kind of a sad situation to uh, erase that identity and characters and personalities and then create a team where everybody thinks the way I think they should think. Uh, I would definitely not want to be part of such a team. So I'm pretty sensitive to those thoughts as well. Okay, makes sense. And what do you think about writing, uh, I'm not saying books, even though you're a very famous book writer, but at least writing something, maybe blog posts, maybe some articles. So some people, some technical engineers, they do that, they publish their thoughts, and some people don't do that at all. They just write code and they just are happy about that. So do you think those are two categories and, of people and we should, uh, we should think about writers as better programmers and non-writers as not as good programmers? Well, again, I, would, I want to emphasize that I, I don't want to get this dichotomy of good versus bad at all. I want to emphasize that. I, I don't want to entertain that thought because that's just not who I am. I don't spend my time talking about good and bad and classifying people. I want to emphasize that very clearly. I am not going to say this is a good person, that's a bad person. That's not my goal at all. Uh, but on the other hand, I would, I would say, uh, you know, one of the things really important is critical thinking. And what can make a person set themselves apart 
is this ability to have critical thinking. And a lot of developers bounce uh, uh, from one API to another. And as people bounce from one API to another, there is no absorption. We are, we are trying to really implement one thing and move on to the next thing. Uh, but to me, one way to get that critical thinking is to just take a pause and write or create a talk. This is one of the beautiful things about presenting and, and writing a blog post, uh, writing an article for a magazine, whatever that could be. When you take a break from what you're doing and express that idea, either as a presentation or as a blog post, it really gives an opportunity for you to reflect on what you know and think a little bit deeper and not just focus on you know, what something is, but why something is as well. You know, why does this API exist? Uh, why is it designed this way? And, and so to, to be able to uh, write something down, whether it's a blog post or whether it is a little article for an internal magazine in a company or, or, or a magazine out there in the world or present uh, in, a, in a conference, whatever that could be, it, it really helps people. You know, one of the things I often tell my children uh, is uh, you shouldn't look for a job. Uh, a job should look for you. And, and I always say this, that the wrong thing to do is to go look for a job. You always want the job to look for you. And I've actually seen people achieve this where they would be very prolific in writing articles or blog posts and organizations that are looking for a particular talent seeks out to them and says, hey, we've read your article, we've read your blog post, we, want, we have a need for somebody with these skills, would you like to come and work with us? And they have taken up those jobs based on such invitations. Uh, so, so it not only gives us an ability to get a deeper understanding of what we are working with, it also opens up doors for opportunities as well. And, and I think that is extremely important. You know, one of the things I started doing for myself is I started speaking at the local user group, uh, you know, two, two times a year. And uh, to me, that was very critical, you know, tipping point because where I am today really came out of speaking in those user groups. And uh, that is being prolific. So you have to be prolific in some way. Uh, it, for some people, it is standing in front of people and speaking. For some people, it's writing books. For some people, it's writing articles and blog posts. Or, or if nothing else, you know, go to a you know school or or a, or a community college and spend some time with the students, teaching them something you know. And and when you start expressing your ideas those ways. It gives an opportunity for us to step back and think a little bit more critically. And, and that, I think, makes a huge difference in terms of how we can better ourselves moving forward. So your motivation to write your first book was, uh, was what? Why did you do it? Oh, it's a really good question. Um, actually, I went to a good friend of mine, a mentor, and I said, hey, I want to write a book. What do you think? And his first question to me was, how is your business? I said, oh, my business is great. I, I'm doing very well. Um, I have no problem you know, keeping myself busy. And he said, a book is a really big business card. And if you write a book, it's going to bring you more business. But if you're really busy with your business and doing really well, 
you probably don't want to waste your time writing it. It's not worth the effort. And, and I said to my friend, my mentor, I said, that's a great advice. Thanks for saying it. I'm not going to bother writing the book now. And I kind of walked away. And a few months went by. And then I realized, oh, my gosh, while he is right about what he said, he's not entirely correct. The reason I want to write the book is not because I want to get a business out of it. I want to write a book because I've got a story to tell. Uh, I have a journey. I have taken the time to learn about a few things. And I've taken the time to think about, you know, the software development and not just write code. And, and I have a story. I have a context. I have some examples. And I want to share that. And, and one way to share that is by giving talks. But as much as giving talks is, you know, maybe great, your audience is pretty narrow. And, and it's pretty temporal. You give a talk and you're done. You know, and back in time, we didn't have, you know, as many videos being recorded and posted as well. So I said to myself, I've got a story to tell, but I want this to be available to a broader set of audience. And so I want to write it. So in all honesty, I wrote the first book because I wanted to share what I know. It, it came out of a genuine interest not for making money, you know, you, you, you rarely focus on, if, if somebody is writing a book for making money, I think they are focusing on the wrong things. Uh, you're not going to make as much money mostly from the books you write. And, and uh, you know, occasionally you may, but that's not the reason to really start writing a book. You want to write a book because you, A, have a story to tell, and, and B, you want to share that knowledge with other people so they can benefit and get better at what they do. And, uh, you know, writing a book is a, is a very hard work. And uh, every single book I've written, only because I believe that I got a story to tell, and I believe that I can actually get other people excited about, uh, about the things that I know, so they can go off and create their own stories along the way. Yeah, and, and, and why do you, did you write your book number 10, for example? What was the motivation there? Well, so, uh, you know, uh, the book number 10 or, or any, any other book uh, really goes back to the same fundamental as to the reason why I wrote the very first book. And, and that is to have this excitement of uh, discovering something, uh, you know, experimenting and playing with something, getting deeper into it. And then having the desire to share that knowledge with other people so that they can get better with it as well. So, so every single book I've written has come out of that desire to share that knowledge, that experience, that journey, so that other people can have a pleasurable experience learning and using those technologies uh, or, or concepts or methods. Um, as an example, you know, one of the books I wrote really came out of uh, speaking at a conference where um, I had finished a talk on a particular topic, and then uh, I spent the next two hours answering questions uh, for developers who are so keenly interested in this particular uh, idea. And uh, it, it made me think right away, wow, if developers are so interested in this idea that they want to spend two more hours with me, uh, in the in the corridor talking about it, uh, I should really focus on writing this as a book, so wider range of audience can you know learn from that experience as well, and that kind of prompted me and and you know call me silly, but this is the way I am. 
I'm actually quite impulsive and uh, and instantaneous. And and in that particular case, and it's almost every other book I've written, when that thought comes to my mind, I usually sit down right at that minute and I start writing the table of contents. And then I start gathering material for what I want to write. And then I quite rapidly end up writing those books. So so I don't usually spend too much time uh, uh, since the time I realize I want to write a book uh, to the time I actually sit down to start writing it. Uh, so I'm I'm driven very um, intently by these kinds of inspiring moments where I'm like, aha, that's awesome. I should really write about it. And I just sit down and write it uh, once I get inspired. And how long it takes to write a book on average? Um, you know, I, 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 I want to quote the words of, I think it was Mozart. And uh, Mozart said uh, that the uh, song has been uh, written... Uh, I, I, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, but it's something like it's been, uh, you know, written, and I just need to, uh, you know, write it down or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I take about a year or two to uh, really dive into a particular concept. I, I let it really, so to say, marinate in my mind, and I develop a lot of ideas in my mind quite a bit, and uh, there is a structure that kind of forms in my mind. Um, about a certain concept, and I don't even know that I want to write at that moment. And then once it clicks in my mind that I want to write something, I typically write my first draft in about two weeks. Um, That's two weeks of very intense writing. So typically, you know, I would find a week where there's a national holiday, I'm not going to have any client work, and I would typically take that week and the week after that away and literally every minute of the time I'm awake, I write the book in about two weeks. And I finish my first draft in two weeks. And then I start rewriting it and then send it off to the publisher for working with the development editor. So a two week of initial draft and then about two to three months of going through a formal edit. And then typically about a month to two months of uh editorial reviews, technical reviews, and then it goes through copyright, uh, copy editing rather. And then, so it's typically about, you know, the fastest you could probably do is six to eight months uh, with all the different um, process that's involved in the, in the, in the steps. That sounds, you're doing it pretty fast because some people say that the book takes like a few years at least, but you're saying two weeks. So it's, it's impressive. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy, <laughs> but, but I love writing, so. <laughs> yeah, and do these books still work as your business card or they're just, uh, I mean, what's, what's, the, what's the effect you get right now from your books? What's the, be honest, try to be honest. Tell us exactly what you're getting from this, aside from the, from the fun you're getting, because you, I totally understand that you're getting a lot of fun by writing those books, but what's the outcome, what's the final result? So, so, so you know, I'll be brutally honest about it. If you ask me, how many copies of a particular book I have sold, I'll tell you I have no clue. It's not because that information is not available. It's because I simply don't care. And I really write books truly for the journey. That's what I write the books for. I, I write books because I truly enjoy the process of learning. And I enjoy the process of going deep into a concept 
and and kind of showing to myself that I can actually spend my time intellectually digging deep into a concept and and writing about it and having it critiqued. You know, one of the things I'm absolutely thankful for is most of my books have been related to programming languages or technologies close to it. And often I have the authors of those languages or technologies review my book. It's a very humbling experience for me to be critiqued by the person who wrote that technology and and for them to correct me and say, yeah, you're okay here, but here you're fundamentally flawed. You need to rethink about how you, you know, express this idea. And and that to me is a is an amazing journey where I can come out learning a lot more than I went in. And when I'm done with it, in all honesty, you know, I, I don't think publishers would love to hear hear that point of view. But but truly I write books because I enjoy the writing process. And then once I'm done with it, you know, that, that's it. I don't, I don't much care about it. Uh, but of course, you know, from the business point of view, uh, it's not as much as a business card, but when uh, organizations call me to come and teach courses for them, I do quite a bit of corporate training. I go around the world, train uh, teams on various languages and technologies and, and, and um, uh, techniques. And, um, you know, having uh, written a few books in related areas uh, definitely helps in the process. It it gives a certain amount of authenticity to uh, the person who is doing the training. But but I rarely try to sell my services, you know, touting that, oh, I'm an author of this technology, so you should hire me. Uh, I kind of let that speak for itself. Uh, so, So it truly, you know, in all brutal honesty, it really is the journey that that I, you know, I, I often say I'm a huge fan of hiking the mountains and uh, I like to go to the summit. And when you get to the summit, you know, you're sitting there on the top and looking at uh, the valley below you. But to me, the real fun part is not that you've gotten to the summit, but it's a journey going to the summit is is as much fun, if not more. And that's exactly the way I feel about writing the book. Uh, it's not what I get out of it. It is the pleasure of actually writing it is is even more important. And uh, and and, and uh, where is the where did you get the most of the pleasure with the first book or the the latest book? I mean, the pleasure is going up or going down? <laughs> oh, I, you know what? I do. I hope it's not going down. Uh, or, or, or you know, it, it's really every single one uh, is is absolutely pleasurable. And and the reason is there are different things I learn. When I started writing my first book, it was a completely different journey. Uh, you know, I look at uh, young, uh, new authors now. I, I do quite a bit of book reviews these days. And I, and I see the new authors make some mistakes. And I often look at it and I smile and I say, that was me about, uh, you know, 15 years ago. And uh, I can see them make mistakes, uh, what we often call as rookie mistakes, that that I once used to do. Now I have moved on to make different mistakes, and and we're always going to make mistakes, right? That that's process of learning, and and I don't make the rookie mistakes anymore. I make an expert mistake now, and uh, but to me that's the challenging part. Every book I've written, uh, there are things I've learned from that experience. Whether it's a technology I've learned more about, or or working with people, or dealing with challenges that you may not even realize. You know, for example, 
one of the books I was writing, uh, right as I started working on the book, I fell really sick and uh, I was in a lot of medication. Uh, and the last thing I could do was concentrate. And I went to the publishers and I said, you know, hey, I am really not well, uh, but I've signed up to write this book. This book is important for you. You accepted it. But I want to tell you that uh, I won't be able to work on this book because, uh, you know, timelines are important and I want to be honest about it. So I think you should go find another author. And the publisher came back and said, we don't talk like that. You have worked with us before. You are part of our family. We're going to give you the time to get better. Nothing is more important than your health. When you are better, come back and tell us and we'll get back working on this book. This book is important to us, but it's not more important than you for us. That really changed my perspective quite a bit. And uh, it took me a year to get better. And I went back to them and said, I'm back and I want to write this if you're interested. And they're like, yep, we are ready. Let's go. And, and the point is, this shows me the human aspect of things where they were not just mis- business minded. They were also empathetic and, and eager to say, we have a relationship and we want to build on it. And, and that aspect is important too. And, and to me, every single book gives me an opportunity to learn something like that. It doesn't have to be just technical, but it can also teach me other things about empathy and relationship and uh, you know uh, various other things that I can learn from other people as well. So, so every single journey, I, I would say I would probably quit writing a book when I feel that I won't have that kind of learning experience. But until that time, I think I'll be motivated to write. Okay. And I guess maybe this question is absolutely irrelevant. I mean, you can easily answer it, but my question still is, uh, do you feel jealous about other authors, other books, which are sometimes more popular than your books? And you can see that some, for example, books about Java are uh, top sellers on Amazon and your books, for example, are not as popular. So do you feel some jealousy against this? Well, you know, that's a really useful question. And, And in fact, you know, anytime somebody says I am jealous, I always kind of think about it. For for, for some reason, uh, I I don't have that jealousy at all, and uh, and the reason probably I don't have the jealousy is uh, I I came from a, a very humble background. Um, you know, I I think I have attained a, a particular. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know what to say, uh, achievement in my life uh, way more than where I started. And uh, so having accomplished what I've accomplished, uh, I don't have that jealousy in my mind at all because I never have that sense of competition in my mind. Uh, It is not where I have to somehow outdo somebody else Uh, it's more of, you know, one of the things is I work with a few group of good friends and we always focus on collaboration rather than competition. So so I don't really have that jealousy in my mind. And uh, the world is a very uh, interesting place. Um, Not everybody who is popular is good and not everybody who is good is going to be popular. Uh, That applies to books, that applies to people, that applies to products, that applies to just about everything. You know, today I I tell my children, 
you know, they are often worried about, you know, am I going to get this? Am I going to get this admission? Am I going to get this job? Am I going to get, and I always tell them, you know, it's not about you alone that determines what you get. You know, it's kind of like the tides uh, in in a sea. You you can't predict how they're going to turn. It, it, a lot of things influence them. It could be the wind. It could be the gravity. It could be, you know, density, so many other things, the rock conditions. And that's exactly what life is. If somebody is really successful, it's not because they are in absolute terms better than me or that uh, I am better than them in certain situation. Uh, and it's just that different events lead to different outcome. And, and some of us get better outcome in some situations than others. So I'm quite happy for what I've done. I am quite happy for helping other people achieve what they can do. And so rather than spending the time on jealousy, uh, I think I can focus my effort on, you know, how could I do better for myself and how can I help other people uh, do better as well? Uh, you know, I don't want to be, um, you know, uh, concerned about people who are doing better than me. Uh, and the same token, I don't want to suppress other people who are trying to do better as well, because that does not serve well. You know, talking philosophically, though, you know, this is something that I think quite a bit. Um, our time in this world is pretty limited. It's it's pretty small, relatively speaking. And, uh, you know, there's only so much we can do. And what are we going to achieve with all that uh, pride and jealousy and conceit? It's not going to come with us. So might as well focus on doing something useful rather than trying to, you know, squash out everybody around us with that uh, sense of competitive mind. That's just not the way that I'm made. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And do you interview programmers? Does it happen to you? Do I interview programmers? Well, only typically when uh, I work with uh, clients where I'm in a project and they are trying to recruit people into that project. That's when I typically uh, interview people. Uh, it's been quite a while now since I actually interviewed people. So it happens occasionally, but not too often. So let's say, okay, imagine the situation that you are hired to as an expert to help us, for example, to interview a, a, a big group of programmers and, and detect the best candidates for, for the job. So we need like superstar programmers. We need only the best. So what would you pay attention to during the well, interview? So, so one of the things I would definitely not do is, is drive the interview as a Q&A. I, I think it's a broken model. You know, you, 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 we sit down in a room, we ask questions and ask people to answer the question. That's not going to get us too far at all. Um, what I have done typically in the past is when we bring a candidate over, we typically ask the candidate to go pair up with somebody and work with them to solve a problem we are currently working on. And we look for how does a candidate approach solving the problem? What kind of questions does the candidate ask? It's not about what they answer, but it's what about what they're asking. And so we look for things like, you know, what is their personality? How are they curious about things? Do they ask the right kind of questions? Are they really interested in challenging and being challenged as well? If they sit there and say, explain to me why you are doing it this way. Why can't we do it differently? Let's talk about pros and cons of what we do and are willing to get deeper into 
uh, the, the code and solve it, I think that's a better way to gauge the capability of a particular candidate. So, so I would definitely refrain from, you know, Q&A kind of things. I also would uh, refrain from, you know, hey, let me give you a problem and you go solve that problem. Because typically that's not the way we do things. We, we have a, you know, code we have to write for a particular feature and we need to explore different options to solve that. You know, how many times do you, you know, implement a binary tree in your work? So, so, so I would really look for the problem solving capability. One of the other things I will also usually look for is, does the candidate challenge and say, why are you solving this in the first place? So, so what if you give a problem and they come back and ask you, hey, rather than telling you how to solve this problem, let me ask you, why are we even solving this problem? What business value that do we get from solving this problem? I'd, I would say that's a better candidate for me than the one who ends up putting all the effort to so rightly solve a wrong problem that shouldn't be solved in the first place. Mm-hmm. But uh, that that's definitely makes sense. And And what are the achievements of these candidates which they bring to the table you would pay attention to before you ask them to to solve the problem in front of you but let's say they're just coming to the office and and each of them has uh, some resume with them and they have some information there so which which part you would pay attention to for example one of them has uh, a number of books published before and uh, some of them have some i don't know some very valuable certificates uh, achieved uh, obtained from oracle for example so who what would, you, what would you pay for? What achievements? Well, so, so this is my, my personal you know, opinion, personal bias. You can call it uh, you know, a, any way you, you can. Uh, but I have the least um, uh, preference for certification. And, and the reason I say that is uh, having worked with uh, you know, a lot of different developers around the world, I have come across people who have certification who don't know a squat. And I've also come across people who are certified, but are really good as well. But they were good not because they were certified. It, the certification there was pretty coincidental. Um, you know, so oftentimes I don't look for credentials on paper. Instead, I, you know, and, and, and in fact, I would even argue if somebody has a lot of different products on their resume, I would say that's a negative. Um, because what they are trying to impress upon is how many things they know, not on how good or how well they know it. So, so typically, I would not be um, guided by what's on their resume, especially if this candidate has walked in and uh, is sitting in front of me. Um, I would look for the depth of their knowledge. I would look for their critical thinking, I would look for their ability to analyze a given situation and problem. You know, I remember one one day I was sitting with a candidate and the candidate had, uh, you know, whatever language it was on the resume. And then they said, hey, let's talk about, you know, how we would approach solving a problem uh, in this particular language. And, and, and I, you know, turned to the computer and I said, you know, let's say we want to solve this particular problem. How would we approach it? Let's brainstorm something. And then the candidate said, well, I'm not really good at that language, even though that has been listed in, on, the, on the resume. I said, that, that's fine. 
I see this other language being list, you know, listed on your resume. Let's solve the problem using that. And the candidate said, I'm not good at that either. Then I said, forget about it. You tell me which you are really good at, and we're going to solve the problem using that language. And, and that's when you realize this candidate was really good at listing various things the candidate knows, but was not good at any one of them. We clearly didn't hire this particular candidate. So, so there are two things I look for in a candidate. They should be extremely knowledgeable about something, but at the same time, they should also have a fairly broader understanding of different things. They should be good to dive into what we need, but they should also be good to go and explore other things we may not be doing today and be able to quickly get up to speed on that as well. So, so resume is the last thing I'm going to be convinced about. It's not the number of things they have listed, but of how good they are in a few things that they are capable of working with. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And do you see the difference between uh, developers and architects? Some people say there are different kinds of different mentalities, different mindsets, but what do you think about that? I, I use the word developer pretty broadly in general. Uh, to me, a software developer is somebody who's involved in very many different aspects of developing software. Um, I, I generally force myself to use this broader definition. Uh, it doesn't have to be just a programmer. It could be a, just a programmer, it could be just a tester, it could be just a designer, it could be just about anybody on the team, in my opinion, as a software developer. Uh, but at the same time, though, I also firmly believe that an architect should be a role and not a title. Um, I don't want to, uh, you know, say this person is an architect. Well, they, everybody on the team should be doing some part of architecture. Somebody could take a lead role in architecting, but that doesn't mean they are just architecting. In, in, especially when it comes to an application, if an application architect doesn't, know to write code and doesn't spend enough time writing code, I would say that's pretty dangerous. You know, I, have, I use a term called PowerPoint architect. A PowerPoint architect is a dangerous architect. So I, I don't want uh, to uh, encourage uh, my teams to have uh, these kinds of PowerPoint architects. So I want this to be, um, you know, if you want to think about it as a, as a feather on the cap, you know, you have a cap, but you can put different feathers on your cap and one of those feathers could be your architectural feather, uh, but that does not mean you don't have your programming feather on your cap. So, so I would say an architect to me is a, is a more uh, thorough programmer who specializes in helping the rest of the team focus on some architectural concern rather than somebody who says, I'm an architect, I don't code anymore. I think that's pretty dangerous. Mm -hmm. So the architect must, I mean, need to understand coding and need to write code. They, right? they, so, so here's one of the concerns I have. Um, I go to companies and I have architects who say, well, my developer should be doing this. And I often ask them, how do they do that? Well, if you cannot roll up your sleeves and show how to do it, there's a disconnect between what you want your team to do to how effectively they can achieve it. So to me, an architect should be that person 
who can mentor and guide the team along the way. So it's largely ineffective when somebody can tell us we should do things, but they're not capable of guiding us and showing us how to actually do it. As a developer, as a programmer on a team, when the architect sets a direction for me, I would want some guidance along the way as well. This also appears, applies to you know, automated testing in a lot of companies. Uh, I've, I've come across architects who say, well, the team should do automated testing. But they themselves cannot, they are not capable of writing a single automation test because they've not coded in a decade. Uh, and to me, mm-hmm. that's a disaster because you have a team that is asked to perform certain responsibilities, but you're not providing the ability to achieve that and realize it. Now, one could argue, why can't I just have a coach to drive that? Well, I'm not saying don't bring in coaches to do it, but but that is not a substitution for an architect to be effective. So, so uh, I would I would say a uh, 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 architect who can deliver a good architecture should be capable of implementing part of the system as well. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And what do you think about um, uh, like side projects or pet projects of, uh, of programmers? Some people do that and some people say that it's important, uh, aside from the main work, from the main project you're working on, to do something on the side, like some maybe open source libraries, maybe some web services for fun, maybe for some little money. So what do you think? Is it, is it really, does it really make sense to uh, distract yourself sometimes to do something on the side? Or, I mean, good programmers, even though you don't like this word, but still, like professional programmers, they are really focused on, on, on one project. It's extremely important. And I'll, I'll say the reason why it's important. So one of the problems in our field today is we have a lot of different libraries and tools and frameworks and approaches And it seems to be like endless set of things coming towards us. The worst way to adopt a technology is to learn it and immediately put in production. To me, this is one of the least effective way of doing things. You know, in in my own experience, when I work with clients, when I write production software for clients, typically the technology that I use to help the clients to achieve that that's not the first time I use a particular technology. So one of the things I always encourage developers is when you learn something, you should never learn something for the sake of using it on production code. There should be a set of things you constantly learn and you have to apply those things on your own pet projects. And you use those, you develop prototypes, you create these pet projects. And the nice thing about pet projects is they don't have to be production quality. They, they may, but doesn't have to be. But they give you this beautiful environment, a playground where you can experiment and try your ideas and, and learn these technologies and these approaches. And we should be doing several of those continuously. And then as time goes on, If we find that one or more of those techniques and technologies we have used in the past is useful for this particular project or production code, we are going to be much more prepared to be able to use it. So so having this pet project is extremely important. 
you know, one of the things I remember uh, that I that, that that has been an aha moment for me was, uh, you know, I wanted to learn about a certain technology. And I was not uh, using it at work, but I was fascinated by this technology. So I looked around and I saw that if I create a tool with that technology, we can actually use that tool to become more productive at work. You know, they say the best way to kill a project is to ask for permission, isn't it? So I just spent my personal time developing this tool using this technology I really wanted to learn. And when I finished it, I quietly put it out there for the rest of the team to use it. And people became more productive because seeking a particular information was really hard before that, but they were actually able to use this particular tool to get that information much more quickly. So, so not only did that help me to learn this technology, it also helped the team to get more productive. Well, little did I know that a year from then, I had joined a different company where they said, hey, we really want you to work on this other technology, but what kind of experience do you have? And, I, and my answer was, I haven't done it for production work, but I've created pet projects with it, and I can show you how to use it, and sat down and demonstrated my abilities with it, and little did I know, my next job was going to be to use that particular technology, and I spent the next few years doing production code with that technology. I could not have imagined doing that had I not worked on that pet project for myself. And, and that's something that I've carried along with me, and, and I always continue to do this. Every single thing I learn, I, I spend my time creating these kinds of pet projects, and, and to me, I cannot imagine not having these kinds of things to continuously work on and, and learn from. So, so we create pet projects because that's a really great learning tool, and, and it's something we should do continuously. That sounds like a, an answer I was looking for. And now one of my last questions is, um, look, you seem to be very busy. You have pet projects, you write books, you talk at conferences, and you uh, work with your clients, and you have kids and a family. So how, how many hours do you have in each day, and how do you put all these things together? How can you manage your personal time? Can you give us some secrets? Oh, so I'm the wrong person to ask that question. I don't have a work-life balance at all. Uh, I get carried away. I am absolutely driven by, uh, you know, what I do. Uh, but I'm so thankful. I have a very kind family. My wife is the most supportive person on this planet, I think. Uh, I, I travel extensively. I, I'm in different parts of the world almost every other week. And as a result, it becomes quite challenging. My, my family is... Uh, a very kind family, but it's also a very highly digital family. Uh, my wife does a tremendous job of keeping us connected. Uh, at any given time, I know exactly what's going on with every member of the family. And we communicate digitally uh, extensively throughout the day. You know, for example, yesterday night when I came back uh, from speaking at the conference at uh, 9.30 p.m., we had a pretty late night session. And I got on the phone and spent, uh, you know, 30, 40 minutes talking to my son about a particular project he has been working on. But throughout the day, he has been sending me uh, things for me to review. So one of the one of the things that uh, drives me really is uh, I'm extremely self-motivated. Uh, I, I came from, like I said, a very humble background. Uh, and, and once, you know, one of the things I tell often is, 
uh, I was a terrible student in school. And it took me a while to really figure this out. And, and to kind of crystallize it, what I say these days is, I really hate studying, but I love learning. And when I was in school, I was expected to study. And I don't like studying at all, but I love learning. And, and I have this intellectual curiosity, and I truly, really, really like to learn. And, and that is a very big motivating factor for me. So what I typically do is, you know, I don't ask the question, how much time is it going to take to do something? Because the minute I ask that question, I realize that to do this particular task, I need three hours. Oh my gosh, I don't have three hours in my hand. I'm going to postpone this. But instead, I ask the question, I've got 15 minutes with me. What can I do in this 15 minutes? And, and, and in all honesty, I literally, when I start the morning, I write down on a piece of paper various things that I want to do in that particular day. And then when I see that I have a 15-minute break, you know, honestly, I would give a talk. My talk ends at 10 a.m. My next talk starts only at 10.30. There's nobody around me asking questions. I will immediately flip open this list and say, what can I achieve in the next 10 minutes? What can I achieve in the next 15 minutes? And you know what? If, if that be seven, seven more lines of code you could write, maybe write one more unit test or take a look at some problem I've been solving, but I need to spend a few minutes thinking about it. So I grab a task to work on in the next 10, 15 minutes that's available. And then you look back at the day. And even though you had a pretty busy day, there were things you still were able to achieve. So, so it comes from really a lot of self-motivation. It comes from the desire to uh, really create value. And, uh, and so as a result, I am pretty driven by those things. And, and that usually ends up you know, producing results as well. So, so you know, that's kind of what drives me is, is the motivation, self-motivation. <laughs> that sounds really inspiring, actually. Thanks for this advice. I think it's an advice for most of our listeners. I have one last question for you. Um, I've seen a few of your presentations, a few conferences. I was sitting and listening, and the, you were taking your shoes off every time you were speaking there. So can you tell us the secret why you're doing it? <laughs> I, I laugh because I'm not wearing my shoes at the moment, actually. <laughs> what is um, it? So, so it's, it's, it's a legacy. So years ago, uh, I started speaking in conferences about 20 years ago. And uh, back then when I started speaking, I had this habit of uh, sitting in a chair and, and speaking. I don't do that anymore. I stand most of the time these days, but I used to sit in a chair and speak. And, and when I sat in a chair and uh, I would do life coding, and, and part of the reason I did that was, you know, uh, it, 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 most of the conferences I spoke in had tables and, and you can't bend or snoop over and type for, you know, 90 minutes. So sitting was the most natural way to do it. And at that time, I would fold my leg, and I really like to fold my leg and, uh, and then, uh, you know, code. And folding a leg is incredibly uncomfortable when you're wearing your shoes. So I would remove my shoes and fold my leg. And as years went by, that habit of removing the shoes stayed with me. I just don't sit anymore, but I just remove my shoe. And it's incredibly comfortable without the shoes, actually. And so it's more of a legacy that kind of continued along the way. <laughs> okay, now I know what's going on. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Thanks for, for the explanation. Uh, I think we're, yeah. 
Yeah, well, I wanted to say thanks. Thanks for, uh, you know, giving the opportunity for me to talk. And uh, I, I hope, uh, you know, whoever listens uh, is, is finding their time valuable. Absolutely. That was a great talk. Actually, you, you gave a few really important pieces of advice for all our listeners and for myself, first of all. So I know now I know a few things which you do and I learn a lot of you, from you. So thanks for spending your time. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye.